unwanted at birth, abandoned as a child, abused as a wife. She had fallen into such deep despair. Death seemed the only way out. Why go on living a life of pain and suffering, she wondered, when going to sleep and never waking up seemed so much easier. Yearning for the peace of eternal slumber, she welcomed death. But the universe had other ideas. There was a purpose to her life. It would take her years to discover what that purpose was. But in the meantime, she had work to do. Living was the only option. But how? How could she continue living a life in which her self-confidence, her self-worth, her self-identity had been stripped away by the people in her life who should have loved her the most? Through all the fear, all the anger, all the shame and doubt, she struggled to find a way forward, always forward. There could be no turning back. She knew it wouldn't be easy. She also knew she had no choice. So she set out to rediscover herself, to rebuild her life and start again. She was determined to find the phoenix deep within and rise from the ashes. Because, you see, the universe had a plan. Hello, and welcome to the Aquitaine Project, a podcast all about learning from yesterday how we can shine today and create a brighter tomorrow. I'm Marlo Mead, your host, guide, and fellow traveler, on a journey where together we draw upon the lessons, wisdom, and experiences of women past and present, women I call my bright lighters. So if you're ready to step into the light of some pretty remarkable women and learn a little, grow a little, laugh a little, and shine a lot. Stick around. A clean slate, starting from scratch, a do-over, back to square one. Call it what you will, but starting over is just a fact of life. It's an inevitable aspect of the human experience. It can be hard, frustrating, and at times downright terrifying. Sometimes we have to start over in big ways, sometimes small ones. There are times we start over by choice. Other times, circumstances arise that force us to make changes that may very well save our life. This episode, I am honored, humbled, and oh so very excited to share with you the story of a woman who embodies so many of the qualities we explore here on the Aquitaine Project. What I've learned about this bright lighter leaves me awestruck, not because of her name or her fame, 
but because of the way she chose to live her life when life didn't give her much of a fighting chance, she found a way to, as she would say later in life, turn poison into medicine. She gave up her old life and started a new one. What she gained in the process changed her and her life forever. Anna Mae Bullock was born with incredible talent and a fearless spirit, the second-born daughter of a woman who was angry, frustrated, and trapped in a loveless marriage. She knew early on she was unwanted and unloved by the mother who bore her. This knowledge would cast a long, dark shadow over her childhood and well into her adult years. Born in 1939, Anna Mae grew up on a cotton farm in Nutbush, Tennessee during World War II. While the war raged overseas, Anna Mae's early life revolved around her parents who fought constantly. Most of the time, her house felt like a war zone, and when the fighting got too loud, Anna Mae would run out the door, across the fields, and into the woods where she would climb her favorite tree, climbing as high as she could to escape the constant battles between her ma and her dad. Her tree was where she could dream of a different life, of being somewhere else, anywhere else. Now, mind you, there were some bright spots in Anna Mae's childhood, like the rare occasion when she went to the movies. She loved being transported to new places and watching the glamorous actresses on the screen. A natural-born entertainer, she would often play out scenes from the movie for her family. Singing in the church choir also made her happy. Even at a young age, Anna Mae had the biggest and best voice in town and was often chosen over the older kids and adults to sing solos. But these joys were far and few between, and most of the time she felt isolated and alone. Except when she was with her two favorite people in the world, Mama Georgie, her maternal grandmother who was fun-loving, warm, and kind and always made her feel special, and her cousin Margaret, who was Anna Mae's sole sister and best friend. Anna Mae idolized Margaret, who was three years older, and who eventually became like a second mother to her. When Anna Mae was 11 years old, her mother abandoned her family. This wasn't the first time she had left. When Anna Mae was five, both her parents left Nutbush to work in Knoxville, over 300 miles away. They had hoped finding new work and a change of scenery would help mend their broken marriage. It didn't. Years later, still resentful, angry, and tired of the fighting, Anna Mae's mother walked out the door and never looked back. Two years later, her father also left, leaving Anna Mae and her sister to be bounced around between relatives for months. Eventually, her sister went to live with Mama Georgie, and Anna Mae went to live with Mama Roxanne, her father's mother, a no-nonsense, formal, and very strict woman, the complete opposite of her beloved Mama Georgie. Under Mama Roxanne's roof, Anna Mae's naturally energetic and adventurous nature was severely frowned upon. There would be no more singing or dancing or climbing trees. When she was old enough, Anna Mae began working for the Henderson family, the owners of the cotton farm where she grew up. She loved being with the Hendersons. They had a quality of life she was unaccustomed to. They taught her about manners and etiquette and took her traveling with them, encouraging her to realize there was more to the world than Tennessee. But the most important lesson the Hendersons taught Anna Mae was that a married couple didn't have to fight all the time, that they could be loving and kind and respectful toward each other, and that they could create a happy home for themselves and for their children. 
It was an example of a better life Anna always held close to her heart, but one later on in life she would find almost impossible to experience herself. Between the tender ages of 13 and 16, Anna May experienced a devastating loss. First, her beloved Margaret died in a car accident. Then, her first boyfriend, whom she was sure she was going to marry, got another girl pregnant and ended up marrying her. Finally, Mama Georgie died. Heartbroken, alone, abandoned, and unloved. Anna May decided it was much better to close up her heart so she would never experience such pain again. With all the life experience and wisdom of a 16-year-old girl, she reasoned that since her parents didn't love her, her boyfriend didn't love her, and the only two people she loved and who loved her back had died, she was done with love, so she closed the door and threw away the key. Remember when you were a teenager? All your emotions ran rampant and every setback or disappointment was devastating. The end of the world. It's surprising any of us survived. After Mama Georgie died, Anna May's mother, yes, the same mother who abandoned her five years before, invited her to come live with her in St. Louis. Anna May's older sister Evelyn was already there. The year was 1955, and Anna Mae Bullock's life was about to change in ways she could never imagine. It was in St. Louis that Anna Mae first set eyes on Ike Turner. He was playing at the Club Manhattan with his band, Ike Turner and the Kings of Rhythm, who were the featured event at the club and played to sold-out crowds of both black and white fans. Seventeen years old and still a schoolgirl, she fell in love with the music and wanted to be part of it. Her older sister, Evelyn, was dating one of the band members. This allowed Anna Mae to become a regular at the club. Despite his well-earned reputation as an outlaw, bad boy musician, Anna Mae was captivated by Ike and the way he could bring music to life. One night while at the club, little Anne, as she was called, got the opportunity to sing on stage between sets. When she opened her mouth, no one could believe this big, powerful, soulful voice was coming from this skinny, teenage country girl. Ike loved what he heard, and little Anna Mae Bullock from Nutbush, Tennessee, young, naive, impressionable, and eager for attention and acceptance, was hooked. She joined the band and began singing professionally. At first, Ike treated her like a professional. He paid her a salary and taught her about making music and the music business. In the beginning, Ike was like Anna May's older brother. He was 25 with a serious girlfriend and several others on the side, and she was just a teenager. Their relationship was fun and centered on music. Besides, Ike was not Anna May's type. It was Raymond Hill, the band's saxophone player who caught her attention, and who would eventually become the father of her first child. Upon learning Anna Mae was pregnant, Raymond conveniently broke his ankle and moved back to Mississippi to recover, and that was the last she ever saw of him. Months later, at the tender age of 18, Anna Mae gave birth to her first son, Craig. When she wasn't singing on stage, Anna Mae worked as a nurse's aide to provide a good life for her child. At one point, she even considered becoming a nurse. But the lure of the stage, the clothes, the jewelry, and the attention was just too strong. She loved to sing. She loved to perform. So, she decided to focus on her career, which at the time was in the hands of Ike Turner. 
Eventually, their musical partnership and friendship evolved into something more. Anna Mae became pregnant again, and in 1960, she gave birth to her second son, Ronnie. 21 years old, with two babies and a budding musical career, once again, Anna Mae's life was about to take another drastic turn, this time for the worse. As Anna Mae started gaining recognition and attention from record companies, her relationship with Ike took on a new dimension. He realized that Anna Mae was his golden ticket, and he was bound and determined to keep her tied to him by any means necessary. As their success grew, so did his need for control, economically, physically, and psychologically. Changing the band's name to the Ike and Tina Turner Review in 1960 gave the illusion that Ike and Anna Mae, now Tina, were married. Anna Mae did not want to change her name, and when she spoke up against the idea, Ike's reaction was violent and abusive. Ike was the controlling force of the band, so Anna Mae Bullock, through no choice of her own, became Tina Turner. Here's a fact I did not know. Ike trademarked the name Tina Turner, ensuring his ownership of her name in the event Anna Mae ever decided to leave the band. What a dastardly, diabolical, calculated move. What's in a name, you might ask? Everything. He owned her career, her contracts, her clothes, everything. He even owned her name. She was effectively his property. In 1962, they were officially married in Tijuana, Mexico, and yet another calculated move on Ike's part to keep her legally and financially under his control. Now, you may be thinking, why? Why in the world would she say yes to marrying this guy? Okay, let's see. She was a young black woman during an era when the country was still dealing with Jim Crow laws and segregation. The mother of two small boys, dependent on a man who held her career in the palm of his hand. Although the band's success offered her security for her and her kids, she had no financial means of her own. She had no family support or close friends to rely on. What she did have was the naive idea that if they were married, the Ike she knew, who could be kind and generous, despite his volatile nature, might feel less threatened and more secure and a happy, secure Ike was a more peaceful Ike. She had held on to her dream of building a life like the Hendersons, the family she worked for as a teenager back in Nutbush, but that dream quickly faded into bitter reality. At 23, Tina found herself the mother of four boys, her two sons plus two sons by Ike's previous marriage, juggling a music career, and a husband whose dark side would take over her life for the next 16 years. As the Ike and Tina Turner Review's fame and popularity grew, especially their live shows, so did the pressure to succeed. The constant pressure Ike felt to produce hit records prompted violent outbursts against the band and Tina specifically. Fueled by his insecurity, drugs, and alcohol, Ike focused his rage on Tina subjecting her to almost constant physical, sexual, and psychological abuse. In her 2018 memoir, My Love Story, Tina recounts that on several occasions, she had to force herself to go on stage, despite having just been severely beaten and battered. She wanted to ensure her audience was treated to a fabulously entertaining, high-energy show, regardless of her personal problems. 
Tina's reality had become a nightmare, and by 1968, after years of severe abuse and chronic depression, she figured the only way out was to take her own life. In an excerpt from her autobiography, Tina recalls, everything was diminishing, my status, my confidence, my world. One night just before a gig, I simply couldn't take any more, and I swallowed a whole bottle of sleeping pills. I knew they'd take time to work, so I calculated that I'd get through the opening number, which meant I would still get paid for the booking. I was so well-trained that even my suicide had to be convenient for him. The pills, however, kicked in just as I started to put on my makeup, and I ended up being rushed to a hospital. As the doctors pumped my stomach, I was fading fast. I came to, with Ike whispering in my ear. He was cursing me softly. Immediately, my heart started racing. The following day, when I woke up, I turned my head, and there was Ike, who said, You should die. Sisters, I ask you, how messed up is that? I'm recounting this experience in such detail, so you can grasp the depths of anguish and despair Tina Turner was experiencing during the darkest time of her life. Well, she didn't die, and she was pretty upset about it, too. Make no mistake, her suicide attempt was not a classic cry for help. She intended to die. She could not understand what she had done in this life or any other, as she once commented, to deserve all the heartache and abuse she had suffered. But somewhere deep down inside, Tina began to realize she was still alive for a reason. The universe had a plan for her, and this gave her a glimmer of hope. She clung to this hope for dear life and promised herself that she would survive, no matter the cost. And believe me, the cost was high. In fact, it would cost her nearly everything. There's a chorus in Trace Atkins' song, If You're Going Through Hell, that goes like this. If you're going through hell, keep on going. Don't slow down. If you're scared, don't show it. You might get out before the devil even knows you're there. When you're going through hell, keep on moving. Face that fire, walk right through it. You might get out before the devil even knows you're there. And that is exactly what Tina did. She realized the only way out of her hellish life was to walk boldly right through it. She had no idea what waited for her on the other side, or even if there was another side, but she was determined to find out. Okay, I'm sure you're thinking the same thing I was thinking at this point in her story. There is no way she could go back to Ike and all the abuse she experienced after this. But she did. Sadly, after years of abuse resulting in her suicide attempt, a toxic mix of fear, loyalty, and shame kept her from leaving. Many women in long-term abusive relationships experience what is known as battered women's syndrome which is a form of post-traumatic stress disorder or a PTSD. Tina was no exception. Her celebrity status did not insulate her from the psychological trauma caused during her abusive relationship. In a 2017 Psychology Today article written by Darlene Lancer, JD, LMFT, victims of abuse stay for a myriad of reasons. According to Lancer, the dominant reason is dependency control by the abuser, shame about the abuse itself, and the dysfunctional nature of the relationship lowers the victim's self-esteem and confidence. Much like Tina did, victims of abuse 
hide it from the people closest to them, often to protect the reputation of the abuser and because of their own shame. Lancer goes on to explain, Victims of abuse may not see that the whole person is the problem. After all, there are good times between episodes of abuse. There are reasons why they love or once loved the abuser, and often children are involved. Other reasons may include finances, nowhere else to live, no outside emotional support, taking the blame for the abuse, and denying, minimizing, and rationalizing their situation. Unbeknownst to most of the world, the private life of Ike and Tina Turner, the rock and roll supercouple of the 1960s and 70s, was the classic model of a toxic relationship and domestic abuse. Tina once summed up her abusive relationship like this. It wasn't a good life. The good did not balance the bad, Tina reflected. I had an abusive life. There's no other way to tell the story. It's a reality. It's a truth. That's what you've got, so you have to accept it. In 1973, Tina was exposed to Buddhist chanting. Ironically, it was one of Ike's women friends who first introduced her to the idea. The Lotus Sutra, a chant Tina still recites religiously every day, is one of the main tenets of Buddhism. The Lotus Sutra, Namayo Renge Kyo, is a teaching of empowerment. It teaches that the inner determination of an individual has great transformative power. It gives ultimate expression to the infinite potential and dignity inherent in each human life. According to Tina, chanting helped her go within herself and discover deep sources of happiness and wisdom in her own mind and heart. Over time, she had learned to change poison into medicine, a Buddhist principle that states we can transform even the most horrific tragedy into the very thing we need to become happier than we currently are. She would take her abusive past and all the challenges she experienced throughout her life, find the lessons and wisdom to turn them into opportunities and create the life she wanted. Buddhism saved her life and gave her the strength and courage to do what she knew she had to do. On July 3, 1976, after enduring yet another brutal beating from Ike, she tapped into her inner strength and changed the course of her life forever. Terrified but determined, she left her hotel room in Dallas, Texas, where Ike was sleeping, made her way to a motel across the highway. Bloodied, battered, and with only 36 cents and a gas card in her pocket, she was finally free. She woke up on July 4th, the bicentennial of America's independence, celebrating her own hard-won freedom. But freedom always comes with a price. Her subsequent divorce left her penniless, homeless, and without a career. The only thing she fought to retain was her name, Tina Turner. She had worked too hard, suffered too long to give up the one thing she would need to rebuild her career and her life. But her name could only take her so far. In the days after her divorce, she struggled to pick up the pieces of her life and start over. She supported her family by taking gigs at conventions, in hotel lounges, and in Las Vegas nightclubs. In her 40s, the once wealthy, famous star of the Ike and Tina Turner Review had become obsolete, but she never gave up hope. Tina Turner, the solo artist, had something to prove. She knew the essence of rock and roll. She understood its heartbeat, the drive that made rock and roll so powerful, and she was determined 
despite her age, which is just a number after all, to become the goddess warrior of rock, the first black female solo artist to fill stadiums like the Rolling Stones. But it would be her manager and eventual lifelong friend Roger Davies, an Australian music producer, who also happened to manage the careers of Cher, Olivia Newton-John, Sade, Janet Jackson, and Pink, who would launch her to stardom. Davies first met Tina on the Olivia Newton-John show, Hollywood Nights. He recognized the power of the R&B legend, but wasn't sure she could make the transition to rock and roll. When she asked him to come see her perform at a local hotel, he wasn't quite sure what to think. Tina knew what she was doing. She believed Davies was the manager she so desperately needed. The first show was the dinner show. Tina was great, but people were preoccupied with eating their food. Davies decided to stay for the late show, and what he saw convinced him Tina was the real deal. Unlike the more sedate dinner show, people were on the tables, dancing, whooping, hollering. It was electrifying. Tina had complete control over her audience. She knew how to connect with people. It was evident she was an entertainer through and through. It could be a room of 100 or 10,000. Every time, every performance, she gave it everything she had. Being from Australia, Davies didn't know her backstory with Ike, but he knew she had talent. He also knew that being a black 40-year-old woman, not the typical rock and roll image of the late 70s, and competing against female singers half her age, that they would have their work cut out for them. She would end up spending much of her early comeback years in England, which meant time away from her boys, working late nights and recording sessions and touring wherever and whenever she could. In the early 80s, friends like Rod Stewart and Mick Jagger helped to support her solo career by booking her as an opening act for their concerts. Finally, things were looking up. In 1984, at age 44, Tina Turner, rising from the ashes of her former life, released the chart-topping album Private Dancer, featuring her biggest hit to date, What's Love Got to Do With It? With six nominations at the 1985 Grammys, Tina would take home four, not only winning the Best Female Rock Vocal Performance of the Year for Better Be Good to Me, she took home Record, Song, and Best Female Pop Vocal Performance of the Year with What's Love Got to Do With It. That same year, she starred as Mel Gibson's nemesis in Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome and crowned her triumph with the film's defiant anthem. We don't need another hero. After all the drama of her early years and facing down racism, sexism, and ageism, and working her butt off trying to make it back to the top, she was on her way. The phoenix had risen, and her music career would become the stuff of legends. All that was missing was love. Oh, but don't you worry. She found it. Meeting in 1985, Tina and now husband Erwin Bach, a German music executive, began a love affair that continues today. It was love at first sight, according to Tina. They married 27 years after they became a couple, when Tina was 73 years old. Finally, she had everything she had dreamed of. Fame, success, money, love. She had survived a suicide attempt, escaped an abusive husband staged one of the most remarkable solo comebacks in the history of music, and became a global superstar. 
Half a century in show business later, she happily called it quits, married the man of her dreams, and continues to spread love, light, and joy to the world through various international projects. Now at age 82, having lived through various life-threatening illnesses and the suicide of her son, Craig, she still holds fast to her Buddhist teachings and optimistic outlook on life. She is a living example that no matter how bad things get, we can find a way to start again. Okay, you guys, I'm not going to lie. Retelling the epic story of tragedy and triumph that is Tina Turner's life in one podcast episode has certainly been an ambitious endeavor, but I feel very strongly that her story has meaning and holds important lessons for all of us. Some may see these lessons through the lens of domestic abuse and violence toward women, and there is no doubt there is much to learn from Tina's experience. But for me, the message of her life lives on in the aftermath of abuse. It is her struggle to reimagine herself, to pick up the pieces, choose a new path, and start over that offers us so much wisdom. So how can we harness the optimism and courage we may need at some point to rebuild our own lives and start again? There's no exact science on what to do when our lives fall apart. Each of us must find our own way through the trauma and turmoil. For Tina, it was Buddhism and a steadfast belief in her ability to rise above whatever was in her way. For me, it is tapping into my innate optimism that all things pass and life can and will get better if I work to make it so. Hmm, that sounds very Buddhist too, doesn't it? Our personal and professional lives can be full of challenges, some of which can feel so overwhelming we think there is no way we can recover. Some of us may be in abusive relationships like the one Tina experienced. We may be dealing with health issues or family problems. Maybe we've made mistakes in our lives that seem impossible to fix. On the other hand, maybe it's our professional lives that have fallen apart. Since the onset of COVID, a 2020 report by McKinsey & Company indicates millions of people have lost their jobs or been furloughed, while millions more have chosen to leave their careers and start over in completely different fields. During what is now called the Great Resignation, many Americans have evaluated new career paths, chief among them teachers. According to this month's Forbes magazine, teachers are leaving the profession for a variety of reasons. Teacher burnout and low pay have always been an issue with teacher retention, and many teachers have expressed that they lost aspects of the profession that they loved so dearly because of mandatory virtual teaching dictated by the response to COVID. Losing a job or switching careers both come with a lot of anxiety and uncertainty. How will I provide for my family? What if I can't find another job? What if I just made the biggest mistake of my life by walking away from my profession? The fear can become paralyzing. What Tina shows us is that we must not let fear keep us from moving forward. No matter how desperate our life feels at the time, we can find a way. Here are a few tips that I came across that just might come in handy the next time you feel your own life is falling apart. You can find the link on the Aquitaine Project website. 1. Accept the past and admit things suck. You can't start over in life if you're still holding on to the past. Whether it be a relationship, a job, family, or other situations, 
you need to accept what has happened. Acceptance doesn't necessarily mean forgiveness or understanding. It just means that you realize something has happened, you acknowledge it, and you're ready to move on from it. Remember that pain and suffering aren't the same thing. You will feel pain and hurt when your life isn't going in the direction you want, but you don't have to suffer. Suffering is a choice. Nothing lasts forever, including pain. So, acknowledge it, experience it, and move on from it. Don't center your life around the hurt and the failures. Get out of that story and avoid the drama. 2. Remember who you are. One of the hardest parts of losing what we knew and loved is the feeling of forgetting who we were before things fell apart. Losing our identity as a wife or mother after a divorce. Feeling adrift after losing our job or transitioning to a new career. The trauma we feel after losing a spouse or loved one. These can all make us doubt who we are and what we're worth. To help rebuild ourselves, we must hold fast to the knowledge of ourselves and reaffirm who we are as a person. 3. Discover your purpose. Thinking about the meaning of your life is one of the first major steps toward making big changes. What are you good at? What do you love to do? What are you passionate about? What makes you feel like you matter? Answering these questions is key to figuring out what will make you happy. Think about what truly satisfies you and makes you feel like you're making a difference. Make that the core of your new life. 4. Reach out. When we are faced with the hardships of life, reaching out to friends, family, our faith, or professional help can make the difference between surviving intact or never being able to put ourselves back together. Remember, you don't have to go it alone. 5. Take the long view. This was one of Tina's greatest strengths. She was able to look to the future and envision the life she wanted. Then she took action to make it so. Circumstances are short. They don't last forever. Use this time as a springboard to create the kind of life you want. I believe we all have everything we need inside ourselves to be joyful and to build a better life when the one we're living now self-destructs and leaves us searching for the way home. No matter what circumstances we may face, our inner wisdom can guide us to make positive choices. In the words of the incomparable Tina Turner, What do we do with our lives? We leave only a mark. Will our story shine like a life or end in the dark? Give it all or nothing. Anna Mae Bullock's journey to becoming Tina Turner is a tale of determination, empowerment, and triumph over a life filled with adversity. A life that tried its best to tear her down, to break her apart, to kill her spirit. And for a while, it succeeded. But her natural optimism and unwavering belief that her life had a purpose won out. And when the day came for her to reclaim her life, she rose from the ashes like the proverbial phoenix a symbol of positive transformation and rebirth. Like the phoenix, she emerged stronger, wiser, more powerful, and in Tina's case, brighter than ever. Her rebirth freed her to become the woman, the artist, the human being she aspired to be. She knew starting over would be a monumental challenge. Despite this, she worked tirelessly to create the life and career she had dreamed of. 
And when they told her she was too old, that a black female rock and roll star was not what the music industry was looking for, she worked even harder. She refused to give in, to bow out because others told her to. Finally, all her hard work and perseverance paid off, and at 44 years old, Tina Turner became the oldest female solo artist to score a number one hit in the United States. Over the next 40 years, she would become a music legend, produce the biggest songs of her career, win eight Grammy Awards, be inducted into the Music Hall of Fame, once as a member of Ike and Tina Turner's Review, and the second time as Tina Turner, the solo artist. She would perform around the world in sold-out arenas to millions of adoring fans, a dream finally come true, and solidify her place in American culture history. But most importantly, she would find love. A deep, enduring, faithful love. The love she had been searching for her entire life. Her musical legacy is unquestionable, blazing a trail for future female artists like Madonna, Beyonce, Miley, Lady Gaga, and Rihanna, and others. She didn't just break the glass ceiling. In many ways, she shattered it. But I believe it is the lessons learned from her life's story that are her true legacy. A legacy that offers each of us hope and instills in us the willpower, determination, and courage to believe in ourselves when no one else will. To pick ourselves up when life knocks us down and start over from nothing if we have to, despite the odds. So, in honor of this phenomenal Brightlighter, let's face the challenges of our lives fearlessly. Let's find the phoenix deep within ourselves and rise from our own ashes and create a life we love. Why I love this woman. She could hold her own on the stage with the likes of Mick Jagger, Rod Stewart, Roger Daltrey, Prince, and David Bowie. Her stage presence was mesmerizing, and each performance was a soul-wrenching outpouring of love and appreciation for her audiences, and I will always regret not seeing her live in concert. Like millions of people, my first introduction to Tina Turner was her world-famous album, Private Dancer. What's love got to do with it and We Don't Need Another Hero are also two of my favorites. Who can forget watching Tina play Auntie Entity in Beyond Thunderdome? She was the best part of that movie, in my opinion. But my personal all-time favorite Tina Turner song is her solo remake of Proud Mary. I can listen to her sing that song over and over and over. Here's something I bet you didn't know. In the original version of Proud Mary, performed with Ike, Tina ad-libbed the talking intro right on the spot. Now that's classic Tina Turner style. Growing up in the 70s, I didn't know much about her early career or life with Ike. I had heard the occasional story, but guess I didn't pay that much attention. As I got older, I grew to appreciate her music, her style. I always loved that lion's mane, those incredible legs, and her boundless energy. She was like a rock and roll superhero whose voice could unite the world. After learning more about her story of abuse and overcoming life with Ike Turner, she became for me a personal symbol of the power of womanhood. Strong, determined, resilient and confident in her own abilities to take control of her life and her career. Like Tina, 
I grew up with parents who abused each other. Their fighting and cycles of violent behavior became the story of my childhood. I often dreamt of the day when I could break free, start a new life, my life. Thankfully, I did, and the shadows of my early years have been replaced with love, light, and joy. Tina did too, but her road to freedom, unlike mine, took many dark and twisted turns. She ultimately found her way through the darkness. Her early encounters with Buddhist chanting and her later adoption of Buddhist spiritual practices helped her choose a different path, one that led her to her own version of love, light, and joy. Recently, I sat down and watched the 2021 HBO special, Tina. When I say I ran through the gamut of emotions, I am not exaggerating. Sadness, anger, happiness, joy, relief. I felt it all. Listening to the horror stories of abuse and watching her relive those memories was heart-wrenching. When she spoke about the night she finally broke free of that life, you could see the resolve, the iron will it took to take that first step. Her remembrances of starting over and rebuilding her career and her life from scratch were a mix of anxiety, dogged determination, and pride. And when she spoke about meeting the love of her life, you could see her face light up with joy and gratitude. And through it all was her eternal optimism, a trait we both share, the kind of optimism that leads you to trust you've got what it takes to change your life for the better. By the end of the movie, I was smiling through my tears. For me, there was a sense of deep satisfaction that after many years of hardship, pain and suffering, and years of people in the media, despite her phenomenal solo success, constantly trying to make her relive the most horrible parts of her life, Tina Turner emerged victorious. As I've come to learn more about her story, I realize it's a woman's story, sure. Yet beyond this, it's the human story. The details may differ from person to person, but it's a story filled with our heartbreaks and fears, our hopes and dreams. It's the story of our search for love and our triumphs over life's many obstacles. It's the story of who we were, who we are, and who we choose to become. As I reflect on Tina's story, I'm sending a loving thought out into the universe, wishing her continued love, happiness, prosperity, and health. And I thank her for the many lessons of strength, courage, and love she has shared with the world. Tina Turner is the bright lighter who lights the way forward, ever forward. When I need to dig deep within myself and find my own Phoenix rising. To learn more about Tina Turner's inspirational story, visit the Aquitaine Project website at www.theaquitaineproject.com and click on her episode image. There you'll find links about Tina's life, career, and journey to wholeness. I've also included a link to her latest book, Happiness Becomes You, a guide to changing your life for good. I highly recommend it. There are also links to resources on ways to start over when your life falls to pieces. If you or someone you know is dealing with domestic abuse or suicidal thoughts, please reach out. I've listed links on the resource page of this week's episode. 
Don't forget to connect with me on the Aquitaine Project Podcast Facebook group, on Instagram at The Aquitaine Project, on LinkedIn, just search for Marlo Mead and I'll pop up. And you can also find The Aquitaine Project Podcast on YouTube. Okay, my bright lighters, until next time, rise like the phoenix and burn bright so your sisters can find you. Yeah.